When I was in third grade, there was nothing I was looking forward to more than going to fourth grade. That transition over the summer was something that we all were looking forward to. I grew up going to LCA, and back when I was a youngin', there were three different campuses that did K through three, but only one campus that did four through six. And so we knew when we were going to fourth grade, we were going to get all combined together. We were going to meet new friends. We were going to have new classes and new teachers. And we were going to get to do what we thought at the time was like more big kid stuff in fourth and sixth grade. One of the projects we were looking forward to was doing this insect board where we had to go hunt around and find insects, freeze them in the freezer, and then stick them on this poster board to do a presentation on them. And I was so looking forward to this, except I had one problem. My students know, and maybe you know as well, I am terrified of wasps and bees and anything that has a stinger. So I forced my dad to catch a lot of those wasps for me so that we could have one of the coolest boards in the fourth grade. Humble brag, I know. But one of the other things that I really was looking forward to in fourth grade was the retreat. My dad was the spiritual life director at LCA, and he did a week-long retreat for fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. Each grade would get to show up after school and then have a night at Bluegrass Christian Camp and then the following day at Bluegrass Christian Camp, and then they would go home. And so he would turn over this retreat three different times. And man, we had heard stories of the things we were going to get to do at this retreat. Stay up super late till 3 a.m. in the morning, play these wild games. I mean, we, he set up bunkers in this field, and we had to navigate through without getting hit by dodgeballs and this water balloon launcher. I mean, it was epic. But there's one game that we played that stuck with me for a really long time. One game that left an image in my mind that I'd like to share with you today. My dad took us up to this field, but before we could see it, he blindfolded us, and he told us that we had to attach our hand to a tiny piece of rope, a piece of yarn, and we had to find the end of the maze. And if we could do that, we would win. We would be successful. And so that was our goal. He put us onto the maze, kind of told us which direction we needed to walk, but we were blindfolded, so the rest of it was just figuring it out, following this piece of rope, hoping we'll find the end of the maze. Well, after a while, I bet you can imagine a bunch of fourth graders were not having very much luck with this. In fact, this was kind of hard for a bunch of fourth graders. And so my counselor came up to me and he said, hey, I see you're struggling a little bit. Let me help you. If you follow my voice, which I did, and then you grab this piece of yarn over here, that'll take you where you need to go. So I trusted him. I grabbed that piece of yarn And unfortunately, it took me way too long to realize he had put me on a never-ending circle. I had to have walked around that circle five times before I realized I was going in a loop. So that was a little frustrating, but he was kind of a prankster, so I knew, uh, he's just messing with me. And my other counselor fortunately saw what he did and said, hey, I'm sorry he did that. Let me help you out. Follow my voice. Hold on to this piece of yarn. It'll get you where you need to go. So I trusted him, I did. I got on this piece of yarn, and it took me straight for a really, 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 really long time until eventually it just fell off. It was no longer in the air. It was just this piece of yarn in the middle of the field on the ground, and I realized, "Uh uh-oh, this doesn't lead anywhere. I am in the middle of this field, and I no longer have an anchor point, a tether to get me back to the course. So I just started walking around not holding anything which got me super far away from where I needed to be. 
Well, luckily, one of the female counselors saw me, and she said, hey, you're not on the course anymore. Let me help you. And I thought, surely this female counselor is not going to lead me astray and send me into any sort of trap. I was wrong. (laughs) She put me back on the course, took me on this piece of yarn that took me in between these trees. And on the outside of the trees were counselors with water balloons, silly string, and Nerf guns, dodgeballs, ready to go to hit whoever walks through that pathway of trees. And I got to say, after this point, I was pretty done. I was pretty frustrated. I felt pretty hopeless that I was not going to find the end of this maze. And I was determined that I wasn't going to listen to anyone else. Well, a few more minutes passed by, and one of my friend's dads came to me. And he's a pretty calm, quiet-mannered person. And he said, Brennan, I see that you're struggling. Can I help you? And of course, I was not going to listen to this guy. I knew he was probably in on it. He was going to put me through some other crazy trick. And I said, no, I don't want to listen. Uh Uh-uh, don't help me. And I determined to do it on my own. He came back a few minutes later after I continued to struggle and feel frustrated at this experience. He said, Brennan, I would like to help you. Will you trust me? I said, all right, what could it hurt? I mean, worst case, he proves me right and leads me astray, whatever. I said, all right, what do you want me to do? Follow my voice. So I did. He said, Brennan, I need you to let go of the rope. So I did. He said, Brennan, I need you to stick out your hand for me. This is kind of weird, but okay. He then proceeded to lift my hand high above my head. He said, Brennan, I need you to be on your tippy toes. So I reached as far as I could get with fourth grade Brennan, and I discovered a piece of yarn way above my head that I never would have been able to find on my own. Someone had to show it to me. And he said, if you follow this piece of yarn, you'll get to the end. So I was excited. I did. I followed it through, and it didn't take me very long to bump into my dad. And he told me, take your blindfold off. And when I did, I saw that there was a small group of students who had made it there before me. And then when I turned around and looked at the maze behind me, I saw the full picture. It was a giant mess of yarn and rope going every which way with counselors and parents alike being told they were in on it to distract and uh, lead away the students from any way they could. And the one way to get to the end was this rope that you would never have found on your own unless someone showed it to you. So I was a little bit confused by this, and I remember looking at my dad and looking at the rest of these students and said, so we got to the end, like, what are we supposed to do now? And he said, go help others find the rope so they can make it to the end as well. It was such a powerful image that's always stuck with me since that moment, both while I was in that maze and when I was after it. Because when I was in that maze, man, I was frustrated and at points feeling pretty hopeless. And I think we can all relate to feeling moments of hopeless, especially as we grow older. I mean, I can remember when I was in middle school, someone told me I didn't belong to any of the friend groups at school. And that cut me to the core, left me feeling Hopeless, And when we have those feelings of hopelessness, we typically start to try and fill it with something. Whether it's our careers, our sports, our families, our hobbies, whether it's our social media presence, we seek something so we don't want to feel hopeless anymore. 
we all seek hope. A group I've been studying this past semester as I've been preparing for our Freedom Weekend retreat a couple months ago with the students is this group called the Pharisees. And as much as they're typically portrayed as the bad guys in Scripture, I found myself relating to them a little bit and even being able to learn from them. Because when it comes down to it, I think the Pharisees are seeking hope. These Pharisees dedicated their life to living out the Ten Commandments. And these commandments were given in kind of general terms, and so they went and took the extra step to create these specific rules, these specific laws for them to follow in order that they could be right in God's eyes. And it's these crazy rules that they come up with where we get rules like they could not draw a bucket of water out of a well. But if they attached a piece of fabric to the rope and then fabric to the bucket, all of a sudden the fabric is lifting the bucket, not them, so that's okay to do on the Sabbath. I mean, it doesn't make sense, but it did to them. Another one, you could not spit on the ground on the Sabbath because that would be making mud, which can be used to make mortar, and that would be considered working. But you could spit on a rock because that doesn't make mud, therefore you're not working, so just don't miss, and you'll be all right on the Sabbath. And really, these Pharisees are just operating out of what they know. I mean, they believed that their hope rested in being able to follow everything they thought God had told and called them to do. They were thinking back to the Mosaic covenant God had made with the people of Israel when he had freed them from, it, from Egypt, freed them from their slavery, but also freed them to know the God of the universe, and he offers them this promise, this deal, you'll be my chosen people, and you need to follow this law that I give you. Well, it turns out, spoiler alert for the Old Testament, the Israelites are terrible at following God's law, so bad, in fact, that empires, nations come over and capture them, take them from their homeland, exile them, and they have to live in a foreign country for years and years and years, and only after that, they finally get to trickle back into Israel. They start to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, only to get captured by the Roman Empire again. And these Pharisees know that their history has been full of them breaking this covenant with God, this covenant that lets them be God's chosen people, the thing they are clinging to, the thing that is their hope. And so they're dedicating their lives to make sure that they don't, they don't mess it up. They're going to follow every law, every rule, every perceived implication of the law that they can so that they can continue to be God's chosen people. And this is where we find a character we're going to look at today. We are going to look at the story of Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus is actually only mentioned three times in Scripture. He kind of has this small little story that you can miss if you're not looking too closely. And I think it's a really impactful story for us to look at today. In John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, we see it say this. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God was not with him. So we know Nicodemus is this Pharisee. 
which would make him this ardent student of the Old Testament. He knows all of the Jewish legal tradition behind it. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish governing body in Jerusalem. He was a teacher and an expert of the Old Testament law. He was highly regarded in Jewish culture. And he's attracted to Jesus because of the teachings and miracles Jesus is performing. And he wants to know more about these doctrines that Jesus is teaching. Because after all, Nicodemus is a teacher as well. And he wants to know what he needs to do to be right with God. He's on this quest for hope, for truth. And Jesus replies in verse 3, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Like I said, Nicodemus wants Jesus to tell him what he needs to do to be right with God. But Jesus flips the script on him. Instead of telling Nicodemus what to do, he says, listen, you've got to be born again if you want to enter the kingdom of God. And that's kind of a strange phrase, and that word again could mean a couple of different things. But in this context, Jesus is saying, you need to be born again from above, through the Spirit. And that is something only God can do. I think Jesus is really perceptive here when he's interacting with Nicodemus. He sees that Nicodemus has this longing. He's searching for something. He's got a hunger. He's got an emptiness. I mean, this is a man who has dedicated his life to upholding the Old Testament law the best that he can, and yet he has an empty and unsatisfied heart that caused him to go seek out Jesus by night so his peers wouldn't know what he's doing, to seek out Jesus and want to know more about this kingdom of God and that the hope Jesus was preaching. But Jesus is trying to communicate to Nicodemus, listen, there's nothing that you can do to get into the kingdom of God the way you are. You've got to be born again. He's laying the foundation for one of the hardest truths we have to accept when we follow Christ. There's nothing that we can do to get our living hope, to be saved. There is nothing we can do because we are a fallen people. That's the problem. The stain of sin in our lives separates us from God. Jesus continues in verse 5 saying this, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Jesus is saying you must be born of water and spirit. And he's building on these baptisms that John the Baptist has been doing previously. What he's getting at is what this signifies, this honest need for repentance, an honest need to admit that you need a savior, the realization that you can't save yourself, an admission that you need the Holy Spirit, that you need to be born again. Because when someone admits that they need Jesus, the Spirit moves. God does what none of us can do. He gives us life. He gives us a second birth. He gives us his life. 
This is the picture Jesus is painting with Nicodemus. He's really trying to help him understand this idea of being born again, so much so that he starts to make references back to the Old Testament that he hopes Nicodemus will be able to pick up on. When Jesus mentions the wind, Nicodemus might hopefully recognize that in Ezekiel chapter 37, the prophet saw a valley full of dead bones, but when he prophesied to the wind, the spirit came and gave the bones life. This metaphor that the nation of Israel is dead, is hopeless, and despite all their morality and trying to follow this religion that they have, nothing they can do can change that. Because they're dead and hopeless, and the only thing that can bring them life is the Spirit. Jesus says, listen, don't marvel at that. Yes, you're a Jew. Yes, you're part of God's chosen people. You're this Pharisee. You might think you're better than a Gentile or a Samaritan, but the stain of sin affects everyone, including you. And if you want to have a hope for life after this one, if you want to have a living hope that you can be set free from the captivity of sin, you need to be born again. And when God's life becomes a part of your life, you can expect changes. You can't be the same person because being born again results in new life. In verse 9 Nicodemus continues with Jesus, how can this be? You're Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Jesus is a little shocked that Nicodemus isn't picking up on what Jesus is saying. He's making these references to the Old Testament that Nicodemus, an expert and teacher of the Old Testament law, should be familiar with. Nicodemus should know that Isaiah spoke about receiving new life from God, that Jeremiah predicted a new creation would be given, that Ezekiel said God would take out this old heart and give a new one. And yet it's still not quite clicking for him. So Jesus tries to make one more reference to the Old Testament that hopefully Nicodemus will understand. In verse 13, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. This is a reference to Numbers chapter 21, when the people of Israel are in the wilderness and they're being bitten by these poisonous snakes. And God tells Moses to take this pole, put a brass serpent on it, and lift it up and place it in the ground. And it was to be this symbol that when the people of Israel looked upon it, they would be healed from the poison in their body. And much as this serpent was to be lifted up on the pole, so the Son of God would be lifted up on a cross. Because the world has been bitten by the poison of sin, and the wages of sin is death. Jesus is trying to paint this picture for Nicodemus that one day I will take the sin of the world on my shoulders. And if you look at me lifted up on that cross, God will forgive your sin. He will remove the poison and stain of sin from your life, and you will receive life everlasting. 
And then Jesus brings it home with one of the most popular verses in Scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God's grand plan for redemption has come full circle. He started by making these covenants in the Old Testament, and now he's offering this new covenant to the world for everyone, for all people, that if you look to Jesus and repent of your sins, you will be given a new life, new heart, a living hope. You will be given the Holy Spirit. After all, that's why Jesus came to this earth. Jesus came to provide a living hope for everyone. Now, I mentioned earlier that we only see Nicodemus three times in the book of John. We don't get to see his response to what Jesus is saying here with John 3.16. But in John chapter 7, we see Jesus preach a similar message at a feast, talking about the need for repentance, the need for a new life, the need for the Holy Spirit. And the Pharisees are upset at Jesus' teaching, and they're getting ready to go arrest him to bring him in unjustly. And who do we see? Nicodemus shows up and says, this is not the right thing to do. We have not even given this man a chance to defend himself, a chance to have a trial, and yet we're just going to go capture him and lock him up. That's wrong. And Nicodemus gets ridiculed, persecuted, mocked for how he defended Jesus. I have to imagine that as Nicodemus has been listening in on Jesus' teaching and this conversation that he's had with him, he was wrestling with what Jesus said, trying to understand if this man really is going to offer the hope that he says he is. And in John chapter 19, when Jesus is lifted up on the cross, I can't help but think for Nicodemus it clicked. He saw it. The Savior of the world put up on this cross, and he's looking to him, and he sees, that's it. This is my hope. He can remove the stain of sin from my life. This man is the Son of God. And what's interesting in John chapter 19 is the rest of Jesus' disciples are running away from him. But there are two people that run to Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. You see, Nicodemus originally came to Jesus at night in John chapter 3, but now he is running towards Jesus with everything he has. He's bringing pounds and pounds and pounds of spice so that he could give Jesus a proper burial. He's not concerned about what the other people think anymore. He, doesn't, he knows he doesn't have to try and live this perfect life anymore. He knows he just has to be with Jesus which is crazy enough to think about. But when you realize that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, that he was this well-respected teacher, handling a dead body would have defiled Nicodemus and kept him away from the rest of the Passover feast. But he doesn't care because he has found his living hope in Jesus, and he is going to be with him no matter what anyone else says or thinks. And if you're still investigating Jesus for yourself, I would love to talk with you online. We would love to connect with you on Sunday morning sometime to talk about the hope that Jesus is offering you because it is a hope for any and all people. But maybe if you're like me, maybe you've heard the story of Nicodemus before. 
Maybe you've heard Jesus' offer of hope and salvation before. Maybe you've even accepted it before. And yet you're wondering, how do I let this living hope truly transform my daily life? I like to explain it like this. Can we turn the lights off? A lot of us have had an encounter with Jesus before. And typically, that encounter is something that we don't forget. It's kind of like this. We can see Jesus. We can hear him. We can feel him. He is a light in this dark world. And when we see it, we get so excited that we want to have a piece of it. And we say, look at this spark that I found when I went to CIY or when I went to church on Sunday, when I went to that powerful Easter service. Look at what I found. It's changed my life. I found a living hope. And then the next day, we try and tell more people about this. And then the next day, we show a little bit more people. But we realize maybe this light isn't as bright as it used to be. And it doesn't seem as exciting. And we don't experience the hope as much as we used to. And then it just kind of fizzles out. And so we think, maybe I did something wrong. And so we come back, we go back to Bluegrass Christian Camp or Move or Mix or Student Ministry or Children's Ministry, trying to find Jesus again. And we do. And we see him. We see this powerful God that we love and want to serve. We see this light in the darkness. And this time, we grab another spark determined to hold on to it. But then we remember, oh my gosh, I've got to take the kids to school tomorrow. I've got to pick them up. They all go to different schools. Oh my gosh, COVID? I have to bring my kids home. I have to teach them, make lunch, dinner, breakfast, and still do my job at the same time. And we realize we don't have time for that spark anymore because life got too busy. And so we seek Jesus again whether it's at CIY, whether it's at church, we go wherever we encountered him last time so we can see that hope one more time. We can experience it one more time. And this time we're determined to make it stick. This time will be the time we cling to this hope. This time it will be enough. And we grab that spark again. And we throw ourselves into everything that we can do. We join every Bible study that we can. We get involved in every ministry that we can. We show up to Sunday morning. We show up to Sunday night. We show up on Wednesdays. We even lead Bible studies. We get involved as we can. And after a while, we might find ourselves going through the motions and we can't answer the question, when was the last time I went deep? in my walk with Jesus? When was the last time I encountered that hope and grew in my own walk with Jesus and got caught up in going through the motions? Maybe you've had an experience like that because I know I've had an experience like all three of those. And you're wondering, I keep encountering this hope, but I feel like it's not a part of my daily life. And church, I want to challenge you today we can't just show up on Sundays, or students, we can't just go to student ministry or uh, CIY or Bluegrass to find Jesus. Those things are all good, but at some point, we have to take Jesus out of the church 
and bring him into our everyday life because people can't deny Jesus when they see him living in our life. Our little spark is one thing, but if we bring a true living hope into our daily life, people will see it, people will hear it, and there's nothing they can do to deny it. We could turn the lights back on. We have to commit to living out this living hope that Jesus offers us. How do we do it? Through the Holy Spirit. Because hope is empowered by the Holy Spirit. In Romans chapter 15, verse 4, it says this. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Church, we have to be in God's word because his word is our living hope. John 1 states clearly, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him and without him, nothing was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. Howard Hendricks says it this way, we have to live and teach from a constant flowing stream, not a stagnant pond. God is offering us a chance to be born again, a new life, salvation, freedom. He is giving us his Holy Spirit. And it's good to get involved in church. Please hear me. I'm not saying showing up on Sunday is wrong. We've got to be engaged in a biblical community. We've got to have a community that helps us grow. We need to come to church on Sundays, go to church on Wednesdays with students. It's great to go to summer camp. All of those things are phenomenal. But at some point, we have to learn how to cook for ourselves. We can't go out to eat all the time. And that's what happens when we sit down with the Holy Spirit together for a meal from God's word. When Jesus was promising his Holy Spirit in John chapter 14, he said this, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Did you catch it? He said, he will remind you of everything I have said. You can't remember something that you haven't learned. Brian Simmons says it this way, if I focus on the depth of my walk, God will take care of the breadth of my walk. I fall into this trap all the time where I get so caught up about making sure my student ministry is running right, that I'm engaging every student that I possibly can, that we make sure to do service projects. I can get so caught up in doing all the Christian things, but then if I have to ask myself the question, when have I gotten deeper in my relationship with Christ, Sometimes I can find myself not able to answer that question. We have got to focus on the depth of our walk with Christ so that we emerge confident in the hope that he gives us, in this living hope that we find in his word, this hope that tells us we are a child of God, this hope that wants to give life to the people around us. Because if we go deeper in our walk with Christ, he will put people in our lives that we can share that living hope with. I told my students this last week, God doesn't expect us to have our lives put together or for us to have all our answers. Rather, he just calls us to share our story, to share our walk with Christ. And when we do that, we share the living hope with the world. 
My challenge for us today is this, to take the living hope that Jesus offers us, to take this chance at new life and apply it to our everyday lives, to immerse ourselves in scripture, because if we are living out this hope that Christ offers, we will take it with us wherever we go. If we get focused on going deeper with Christ, people will see the light of Christ shining in us. They will see the hope that we have. And all we need to do is look to the cross and point others to the cross. Father, we are thankful for the the message your son has delivered to us, his death on the cross, that he has redeemed us, that he has sent hope for us when we could not save ourselves, that he has given us a living hope that is life-changing. And Lord, I ask that you will help us to bring Jesus into our everyday lives, to apply his word to our lives every day so that we can show that hope to the rest of the world. It's in your son's name. Amen. What a great kickoff to our new series as we learned about the hope that Jesus brings for each of us. Here at Northeast, our hope is that you are encouraged throughout our services. And if you wanna take a next step or you wanna talk with one of our team members or you just need someone to help you find that hope in Jesus, you can always send us a message right here on social media. You can send us an email to notestomani at ncclex.org or go to nccleX.org slash connect and one of our team members will connect with you. Lastly, church, we always leave time at the end of our service to honor God through generosity. And if you partnered with us continuously, we are so grateful for all that you've done to support the mission here at Northeast. We are thankful for you and as we spread the gospel here in the 40509. Thanks for joining us today. We'll see you right here next week either online at 9 and 1045 or in person at 1045. So we hope you have a blessed week and we'll see you next week.